Last week, I introduced the theme for our Christmas series about ponder. And we read this verse in, Luke, in the Luke account of the nativity. But my favorite part of it about ponder is from um, chapter 2, verse 19. And in this case, the shepherds have come um, at the encouragement of the angels. And, and they've come to see the Christ child. And it says there that in Mary's heart, she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And so we talked about that last week. And ponder means to reflect upon. It even means to confer with confer in your mind with yourself, to revolve in your mind with yourself, to, to discuss it in your mind with yourself. And so this, this season, I've asked us that we're going to try each week to have something to ponder about the nativity story. I want us to ponder expectation. This came about because this week Jared and I were discussing the songs for the service today, and he mentioned the old hymn by Charles Wesley written in 1744 called, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And it just struck me like, that is such a great, great hymn. And the words and the thought behind it are great, really great. And so I said, that's, that's what we're going to do this week. We're going to ponder the expectation of Christ. So we'll, and we'll be singing that later on. Let me read to you the first two verses here. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. The, the verse comes from Haggai 2.7. And, and you find it right here where it says, dear desire of every nation. And that verse is what inspired Charles Wesley to write the poem that eventually became the lyrics and all for the hymn. Born that people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in our hearts alone, by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. That's great. I just, I really, really love, especially the first verse about born to set thy people free from our fears and sins, release us and let us find our rest in thee. Those are great words, great words. There are many ways in which Christ was expected. When we think about long expected Jesus, why would, why would Haggai write that verse? Why would it capture the imagination of, of Charles Wesley to write this hymn and that poem? And, and actually because it's, it is, it's, that expectation is throughout all of Scripture. And those of us, when we are living in that spirit, when we are understanding of who Christ is and what he did when he came, we too should be living with that same spirit of expectation. So let's start. One of the verses uh, you should be really familiar with by now is Genesis 3.15. So you've heard us refer to it now for a few years as we've been going through Genesis and all. And this passage right here is the one that is, the, it is, I mean, it's funny, I say the seedbed, it's the beginning, it is the genesis, you can't get around certain word plays there, can you? It is the genesis of expectation for Jesus. Because there in 3.15, what has happened, Adam and Eve has just, they have just sinned. They have just been found out by God. And he is now speaking to them about the consequences of their sin. And he says here, um, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And 
He shall bruise you on the head. Enmity between your seed and her seed. Whose seed? Enmity between the seed of the enemy, the adversary, and her seed. And, and so I've used this probably every year, and I really, really love this graphic up here because it is just, it is beautiful. It is beautiful when you look at it here. Um, when you look at it. So here is Eve. She's overdressed, I think, for her, that particular instance. There's Eve, and she places her hand on the tummy of Mary. There she is holding her apple. The snake is wrapped around her leg, but Mary is stepping on the head of the snake. That's technically not her. It is her seed that will. It'll be her son that will step on the head of the snake. It will be Christ who does so. But that is a beautiful, beautiful artistic expression of this passage. Eve's seed, one day one of her descendants, which would be Mary, will give birth to a child, and that child will crush the head of the enemy. In this instance, this is expecting Jesus. He's the, this is at the highest level of expectation. This is at the cosmic level. This is at the, the spiritual level of expectation. Because right here, this is, this is speaking to the spiritual warfare and the warfare between the holiness and the, of God and the pride, the sin, and the deception of his enemy, Satan. And that which is being waged in places that we don't see, in ways that we don't understand. But Paul writes about it in Ephesians 6.12 because there he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. And so this first sense of expectation is addressing the overwhelming aspect, the overwhelming sense of spiritual warfare between holiness and evil, between God and Satan. And here he says, the battle's already been won. He points toward the Christ child far, far away. And not with a great deal of specificity, but he points enough that you say, it, it's almost like if you can imagine this, if you've ever been on like a, a road out west or something, and it's just that long, long road. You've ever been on a road like that? And you can see something way out there. And you don't know what it is, but you can see it way out there. You've probably seen it in a movie if you haven't. And that's what, that's what the Scripture does. That's what God does with Genesis 3.15. He says, way out there. Can you see it? It's coming. Way out there. Just look. Keep your eye on it. It's coming. And what happens through Scripture is he continues to do that. He continues to say, remember what I told you in Genesis? Remember what I said to your forebears, to your, to your ancestors? And I told them, I said, it is coming and throughout the Old Testament, he continues to say, every once in a while, he goes, it's still coming. It's still coming. Keep your eyes open. Look, there, it's coming. And he does that. What he does in, um, in, in the New Testament, where he speaks about the struggle between flesh and blood. In 1 John 3, 8 there, he says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So from the very beginning, there has been this one who's coming and he's been working to destroy the work of the enemy. And that verse in 3.15 is exactly what John, 1 John is speaking of. 
that child will be born and he will be coming to destroy the work of the enemy. Many of these other Old Testament passages, perhaps the one that many of us might know, is from Micah 5.2, but it's technically, you might have read it in Matthew 2.6, because here, the three magi have come to see the Christ child. But as, to, for, as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Micah speaking of the power of the Holy Spirit, points forward to that descendant from Genesis 3.15, to the seed of the woman. Isaiah 7.4, here there, Isaiah speaks in the, again underneath the power of the Holy Spirit, says, Therefore the Lord himself will give a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with the child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And we know that that means God with us. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. And from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish, accomplish this. All these men spoke as the Holy Spirit led them and guided them. All these men, they weren't there in the garden when God said, the seed will crush the head of the enemy. And even looking forward, as that's what they were doing at the power of the Holy Spirit, they were still pointing forward. They were still saying, it's coming. He's coming. And, and you see that they don't call out a name. They don't call out the, the date necessarily. But they point forward. And they continue to keep that expectation in front of the people. He's coming. He's coming. The next instance of expectation could be considered a stretch. I have to admit this, all right? But I love it. Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And here in Luke 1, go to verse 41. And in a sense, even the unborn were expecting the Messiah. And it came about when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting. Mary has come. She's pregnant. She's come cousin Elizabeth, who is also pregnant. Now at this time, Mary arose. I'm going to start in 39. 39. Mary arose and went to the haste, with haste to the hill country, to the city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it came about when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Unblessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how is it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. There was a very unique, very unique expectation there. Where even the unborn yet, in this case John, was expecting and waiting for the Christ child. And later, in Luke 3, 3 through 6, John would also point toward the Messiah. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it was written in the book of the words 
of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine shall be filled up and every mountain and hill shall be brought down and the crooked shall become straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. And then skip over to verse 15 and 16. And now while the people were in a state, and what does it say? A state of expectation. And all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might be the Christ. John answered and said to them, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not unfit to tie the thong of his sandals, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The people were expecting. They had been taught in their synagogues. They had been taught about a Messiah, one who was going to come. And so here is John doing things, saying things, behaving in a way that they had never seen before. And they said, is he the one? You see, their expectation was so much, it wasn't like someone had to remind them, oh, by the way, there's someone who's coming. No, it was on their hearts. It was on their mind. And so when they begin to see someone who's, who's behaving in a supernatural way, someone who's behaving differently, someone who just might be, it's like, when, is, he, is, is this him? Is this Genesis 3.15? Is this Isaiah? Is, is this Micah? Is this the one? Because it was on their hearts. Their hope was set on it. But their hope was not set on a Messiah that would come and save them from their sin. Their hope was set on a Messiah that would come and rid them of the rule of Rome. Their hope was set on someone who would come and save their day and their temporal lifestyle, their physical lifestyle. Their hope was not set on one like Anna and Simeon. Luke 2, 25. And here are two examples whose hope was set on a Messiah, not one to throw off the government of Rome, but one who was going to save them from their sin. Let's read this passage together. Luke 2, 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout and looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Here it is. God had said, you will not die before you meet the Messiah yourself. He is coming. He's in the temple. He's waiting day in and day out. And he came in spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, and he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, now, and, and read this. Is this not just packed? with emotion, packed with anticipation that has been met. Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed by all the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Here, Simeon is saying, I have waited all my life for this. And now you have fulfilled your promise and I can go in peace. I can die now. My expectation has been met. I have seen the Lord. But they're not done. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineo, and the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage. 
and then as a widow in the, to the age of 84, and she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at the very moment, she came up and began to give thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. These two people highlighted, because we know that there was more because she says that, there, that she kept speaking about the, him, about Jesus, to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. There were others, not just them, but others. But I dare say that there were not many others because the, mass, the vast majority were looking to just have Jerusalem to be reestablished, to have Israel become a nation, to have the line of David on the throne, to, be thrown, to have Rome be thrown out. And in their mind, glory, glory was caught up in the temple. Glory was caught up in them being independent and sovereign. But their idea of glory was so tiny compared to the glory that God had in mind, compared to the glory of the Messiah. As Jesus begins his public ministry in Luke 4, go to Luke 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. This is the beginning of his public ministry. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and, dis- and recovery and to the, of the sight of the blind, and to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Do you see what he just did? He just said, you have been waiting all your life. Israel has been waiting for centuries for this verse to be true. You've read it, and you've read it, and you've read it, and you thought, wouldn't that be something? What about that day? When will it be? Who could it be? Do you think it could be? Do you think it was? Do you think you could come? What will it look like? Where will you come from? What a day. What a day that will be. And he stands up in Nazareth, of all places, a small, small village, and he goes, today's that day, and I am that one. If you read the passage, they pick up stones to stone him and they run him out of town because they weren't looking for a Messiah like him. They were looking for a Messiah that they had created in their minds and their hearts to give them what they wanted, not what they needed. In John chapter 3, you see, they, they, at this point, they had been underneath dominion of the Romans for, for years, years, hundreds of years. And everything about what they thought about, everything, their minds were consumed with being free of their dominion, being able to worship freely, being able to do, you know, to have the temple, to have it restored to its glory, to be able to worship the way that they felt like they'd been instructed. That was what they were looking for. And here we are. In John, the Lord is teaching and he says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, 
but that the world would be saved through him. And then later on, read and flip over to chapter 6, verse 47. And there he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Here he is. He shows up and he says, I came. This is why I came. I didn't come to judge. I came to save. And all of them are like going, that's great. That means there's an army, right, somewhere? That's great. That means that Rome will be thrown off somewhere. And he goes, no, no, it doesn't mean that at all. I came to save you in a way that your fathers longed for on a day before. Your fathers are a lot like you. They were looking for bread from heaven. They were looking for physical bread, and that's what they wanted. That's what you're looking for now too, isn't it? You're not looking for a spiritual government. You're not looking for spiritual salvation. You're looking for physical salvation. You're looking for, you're looking for bread to eat. And I don't have that to offer you. I have better to offer you. I have the bread of life. I come to offer you something better than freedom from a Roman government. I come to offer you freedom from your sin. And they didn't get it. Your ancestors wanted something physical. You want something physical. And I've come to give something more than that. I've come to give the spiritual. And so just like Nazareth, when they ran him out of the town there in Jerusalem, eventually they run him out of the town there too to just outside town, to Golgotha. They, they murder him for sins he didn't commit. And in that, he fulfills his purpose here in dying for sin for all of mankind. And so Genesis 3 says, he's coming, he's coming. He'll crush the head, he's coming. Everything's going to get set right one day. Everything, it will all be okay. It's a mess now. This is not what we thought it would look like. It's not what we hoped for. But he will crush the head. And Abraham, your descendants, your seed will bless all the world. How will your seed bless all the world? Because your seed will deliver the Messiah who will crush the head. And then Isaiah and Psalm. And all these passages, Micah, they keep talking about him throughout all of history. Keep pointing, keep pointing, keep pointing to him coming. And then he arrives and they go, you're not what we wanted. You're not what we wanted. Please go away. We'll find our own Messiah. And yet here we are in this room. And the most of us in this room have come to a place where you at some time or another, you understood Jesus as your Messiah. You understood him not as anyone who's going to make sure you have bread on the table, but you understood him as one who's going to give you forgiveness of your sins. In the first advent, in the first coming, he came to rescue. And so we live as rescued people. We live as people who have have been able to have victory over sin or the consequences of sin through the death and the resurrection of Christ, and we placed our faith in him. But there is an expectancy that we have, do we not? And so turn in your Bibles to Romans 8. And there, many of us would say that this is one of our favorite passages. I know that it's one that many of us would go to. In Romans 8, Paul is writing about the, Paul is writing about a new expectation. 
verse 18. Let me read it to you. For I consider all the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be repealed, that is, that is, that is to be revealed to us. I am not, I'm not, I, I want, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to what we are still expecting. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to the corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what does one also hope for that he... But why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. If we hope for what we do not see, we have great, great expectation. That passage right there speaks of an expectation that we have. And so you say, well, then what does that expectation look like? It says here, it says, uh, so creation is going to be freed from the groaning in our hearts and are in the, that we, we, the suffering of this life. What is that expectation going to look like? What's it going to be in, in our minds and our hearts? While we are free from the guilt and the shame and the penalty of our sin, we know that in this life, our bodies do not work well. We know in this life that our relationships do not work well. We know in this life that we do groan. We do ache. We do long for our, for our bodies to be, for, our, for us to be adopted as the sons of God. We long for that day. How many times have you heard someone, you said it to yourself, like, I just wish he'd come back right now. Every night when I hear Fox News on, I say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know? It's like when you just experience the pain and the grief and the anger of our world. You go, is there any, any, any out? What is our hope? This week, I thought that as I felt like in the few moments of George Bush's funeral, that there was this, this pause. It was civil. It was respectful. It was honoring. And I thought, why can't it be like this all the time? And it's because we are still waiting on him to come and take us home. Flip in your Bibles to Revelation. Revelation 21. When you say, well, what are we hoping for? What's it, what is this going to look like? What's this going to be? Why? Why would I have any hope in anything? And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away 
every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, and the first things have passed away. And he on the throne says this, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these words, for they are faithful and true. What are we waiting for? What is the anticipation that our hearts should be attached to? What is it we should be excited for? What does the passage say? Oh, new heaven and earth, that's fine, that's great. But what I really like is he says, and God will dwell among his people. And he, he himself will wipe away every tear. And all the pain of this life and all the worry of this life will be done. It will be done. Is that something to be expected for? Is that something to be anticipating? And in chapter 22, same verses 1 through 5, And he showed me the river of the living water, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb, and in the middle of of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit and bearing its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. But here it is. Here, this is the part. This is what we're looking for. This is what we're expecting. And there shall no longer be any curse. Everything that got happened, everything that was done, everything that got set in place in Genesis 3, boom, Revelation 22, and the curse is gone. It is no more. And the curse is removed. And the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. And then, here we are again. This is what we wait for. This is what we anticipate. This is what we set our heart for. And they shall see his face. And they shall see his face. No man has seen his face yet. But we shall see his face. In chapter 22, three times the Lord says, I am coming quickly. Verse 7, and behold, I am coming quickly. Verse 12, behold, I am coming quickly. And verse 20, his closing words. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Paul closes out 1 Corinthians sixteen twenty-two with this one word. And he just says, Maranatha. It's a strange word to us. It's not one we use. But the word just means, yes, Lord, come quickly. We as God's people since the beginning of mankind have lived with an expectation, first coming to rescue us, and now we live with an expectation of him to come and take us home. We, we live with an expectation too. Yes, Lord, come quickly. Maranatha, Maranatha. Let's pray. Lord, may we be like Anna and Simeon, that we never falter in our desire for you, that we never falter in our hope for you, that we would be diligent, that we would be devoted to the promises that you've made to us. And you said, I am coming back. And I promise you things, that when I come back, I will wipe away your tears, but more than that, I will be among my people and they will see my face. What great anticipation. Come, thou long 
expected Jesus. For we wait for you. In your name we pray. Amen.